0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Uh, before we jump into Genesis 3, I'd like to pray. And to pray today, uh, I'm going to read some sections from Psalm 89. Uh, I was reading this this morning, and uh, to be completely transparent, was struggling uh, to pray, and I found that that this psalm, uh, gave shape to the things that I wanted to say. So uh, when, when I feel as though I can't pray, the Psalms are uh, a crutch for me to approach God. So I'll read some, some sections as our prayer this morning. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the Holy Ones. Your faithfulness surrounds you, You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. Amen. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 today, and up to this point, The intention of the series has been to kind of ratchet up this idea in thinking about the goodness of God's design. Uh, Far too often, even Bible-reading Christians behave functionally like the Bible starts in Genesis 3. And what I mean by that, if I can be permitted to paint with a very broad brush for a moment, we're quick to view people and institutions as suspect right we define things by their fallenness their corruption and their brokenness and sometimes and i could just be offering my own experience i don't know christians don't often recognize the goodness of god's design or they're not often quick to do so so years ago there was research about how christians are perceived in the wider culture and none of it was that they were too joyful, uh, that they were like exuding uh, joy, generosity, and goodness to their neighbors. That wasn't what the research indicated. Whether or not that research is is accurate is a separate thing. But I think I think it's a fair I think it's a fair assertion. So it becomes increasingly important for us as Christians to remember that beyond the brokenness that we see in the world, there is a deeper reality. That before all the fallenness and corruption we see in the world and in its institutions and in its people, ourselves included, there was the foundation of the goodness of God's design. The earth, relationships, image bearing, physicality, on and on and on, we could talk about the goodness of God's design. But as we start to pivot today toward decreation, we realize that we can't maintain a naive vision of the world if we're going to have any credibility with our neighbors. And we all know this. <laughs> the, the world is clearly not running as it should be. right? It doesn't take I know, I, I've come from the mountaintop to tell you that. Like it doesn't take any special insight. It doesn't take specialized knowledge at all to discern that we're not looking at the way things should be. So today we're actually gonna look at the Bible's origin story of how that corruption started. And I have two simple goals today that if you could keep these in the back of your mind, cause I'm gonna pile on like a main point and sub points and subpoints below those points. My two main goals here is having spent some time reflecting on the goodness of God's design, the goodness of the earth, the goodness of work and of relationships, of our image-bearing, the presence of God in the garden. Having reflected on all those good things, I want us to be in a position to genuinely grieve what happened. To look at the fall of human beings in Genesis 3 and to experience grief. And the second is to be encouraged by the hope that we see there. More than that, I specifically want us to be encouraged by the view of God that we see even in this chapter. So what I hope will anchor us today is uh, the main point that the fall of human beings corrupts God's good design. Fairly obvious, what I would add is just a second clause kind of parentheses, it doesn't completely undo the goodness of God's design. It corrupts it, but it doesn't undo the goodness of God's design. And within that large framework, I believe that this passage compels us, first, to recognize the subtlety of sin, two, to grieve the marring of Eden. And three, to remember the generosity of God. So as we exposit this passage, we want to keep in mind how can we be legitimately grieved by this? How can we be encouraged by the portrait of God? How can we recognize how this corrupts God's good design? And then as we exposit these different sections just to be aware of these things. So first, let's look at recognizing the subtlety of sin, and this is going to be in the first seven verses, which I'll read at each point in the sermon. I'm not going to read the whole passage. It's a pretty long chapter. I remember doing Christmas Eve services where nobody wanted the 24-verse reading, so I always, I would say drew the short straw, but it's the Bible, so I always got to do the long reading. Um, Stephen always got the one with Bethlehem Ephrathah because, As you can tell, I would have a hard time pronouncing that. So anyway, I'm going to read the verses as we go through them. And this is a story that I think is familiar to all of us. So we're in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So the Bible doesn't offer any extended commentary on the serpent or his origin. But we can see from the outset, first, he's a created being. It might not seem like a big deal, but it actually is, it makes the passage ironic. Verse 1 says, any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. um, He's a created being. Um, And second, he's a usurper. Now I want you to look at the progression of what happens, because I think this is going to point us in the direction of, of sin's subtlety. The serpent asks the initial question, did the Lord say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? And Eve replies, but in her reply, she goes beyond answering the question. She offers a little extra that the serpent didn't ask for. She adds this clause, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And that's exactly what the serpent latches onto. Now, none of this might seem like a big deal. She offered more than what was being asked. And I don't mean to be coy, but she, it seems, is under no obligation to respond to the serpent at all. So let me ask you this, and I, I, do you know what time it is? The answer to the question is yes. Some of you started to reach for your phone. Caleb was looking at the computer screen in the back. The question was, do you know what time it is? It's a yes or no question. Answering more than what the question asks goes beyond. Now that's probably a pitiful example, but what happens here is the serpent latches on to what she says, which goes beyond the answering of the question. And this is where the twisting starts and the theological uh, discussion begins. The serpent, himself a created being, begins to offer his commentary on what God really meant. He dives right in and says, you're not going to die. Instead of honoring the boundaries that the creator had set up, of recognizing the goodness of those boundaries... The serpent portrays God as withholding something from them, right, of holding them back. God's squelching your potential. He's hiding something from them. And that's enough to create the tipping point. And before we exit this point, I do want to comment on a little bit of a comparison with Jesus' temptation, because I think it's helpful. It might highlight a little of what I've said here. She went beyond what the question asked, and that created the environment where the serpent could twist things. But I have to hasten to add here that they're not innocent, right? They're not victims. They're deceived, but they're not bystanders. The text clearly says that she rationalizes her choice. She doesn't just say, you're right, I should eat this. She saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise. She's not innocent here. So she allows the serpent to speak, which I think is the first mistake, and then she starts to give credence to his words. Had she obeyed the simplicity of God's boundary and not even entered into this conversation, we can at least see the possibility of a different outcome. And we need to be aware of the complex interplay of temptation and corruption, right? The devil made me do it is not a legitimate defense. And the irony is immediate. The text is very clear. Are their eyes opened? The text says yes, their eyes were opened. Do they, experiencing the, do they experience the flourishing wisdom that they were promised? You tell me, did they experience the flourishing wisdom that the serpent had promised? No, their eyes are opened and they're immediately ashamed of their nakedness. If you go back to the end of chapter 2, one of the concluding statements is that the man and woman were naked and they felt no shame. Now, that's a weird thing for us to talk about. But immediately upon having their eyes opened, they experience uh, shame. And they sew fig leaves together to cover that, to cover that shame. And we've all experienced this reality ourselves. It's not a long time ago, right? What we sing in the song, All I Have is Christ, the sin that promised joy in life had brought me to the grave. Sin always over promises and it always underdelivers, delivers, right? But there's more and I think it's important to reflect on the subtlety of this deception. Is the serpent in a sense right when he says your eyes will be opened? Is the the temptation is accurate? Their eyes were opened. And this is what temptation does. It offers up something that is partially true. The serpent isn't offering up anything that seems inherently evil. He doesn't come right out and say, hey, can you help me to overthrow God, to usurp his authority over his creation? He doesn't come right out and say what he's on about. He's offering something that can seem good on the surface. And this is precisely how temptation works. Masking something that is evil with something that is good. 2 Corinthians would say it this way. It's up on the screen. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Temptation and destructive corruption, they don't shout. They're not always obvious. Recognizing temptation requires discernment, and discernment requires community. What's interesting here is that even though there is the possibility of consulting the Lord, it seems, even though it seems as though the man is present, she doesn't consult with anybody. And the man doesn't pipe up. This is a decision made in isolation. And it's yet another reason why God says it is not good for man to be alone. And I want us to consider here our own choices. Are we really living in community with each other or are we content to live with a sense of community? Are we subjecting our decisions to the wisdom and the scrutiny of trusted and wise friends? Are we trusting our friends to help us discern God's voice in the midst of challenging choices? Not only that, but in our rhythms, right? So I experience it for myself in in terms of if there's something that I have to withhold from Cynthia, if there's something that I have to withhold from Jacob and David, I know that something's wrong. If there's something that I am hiding from people and that I'm not willing to bring out into the light, if I'm ever tempted to say, I got this, I'll give you, I don't got this, right? We were at a cross-country meet yesterday. If you've ever run on the Dairyfield course, it is a non-stop sufferfest. You get to the top of a big hill, and then you run around a loop, and then your reward is that you get to run to the top of McIntyre Ski Area. And there, like it, it really is awful. And I was standing in that spot watching the faces of these high schoolers coming up the hill, and there was this enthusiastic person there cheering them on with the, you got this. And you can see the looks on their faces that they don't, right? Especially you could tell the difference between the kids who had run the course before and were experiencing just benign levels of suffering and the kids who had never run the course before and were in despair. That like you think the climbing is never going to end. And I just wanted to hug all of them and say, the worst of it's over. For real, like once you get to that spot right there, it's basically flattened downhill. You can cry after. But anyway, um, if I'm ever tempted to think that I got this, I know that I don't. So a fair question to ask is in the midst of our day-to-day, in the midst of our challenging choices, are we inviting community? Are we bringing our choices out before other people, putting them before the Lord, before our trusted friends? Because this is a decision that they made in isolation. And perhaps what's worse is that sin's consequences are not always immediate. Did they die? Hmm, event... Yeah? (laughs) Yeah? The answer is eventually, right? And this is the twisting of what happened, right? The Lord didn't say they would die immediately. So sin's consequences, they don't always appear immediate. And there's a sense in which the truth is that they wouldn't die. But again, God didn't say they would die immediately. This makes temptation and sin and corruption just so subtle and so challenging to discern. And it's far worse when you have a person, or in this case, a being, who is just willfully, intentionally manipulating you. That's where healthy, trusted, wise community is so, so important. And not just the sense of community, right? I have to be willing, like the reason that I trust the friends that I trust is they're willing to push back on me. Right? I can abandon ship at that point if they tell me something I don't like, or I can trust that they love me and they're trying to you know, advise me in wise ways. So in addition to all this, as we talk about the subtlety of sin, there's just one additional thing worth considering. And I'm not going to go into much detail, but it might be uh, material for questions or even conversations later. When we compare Genesis 3 to the temptation of Jesus in Matthew four and in Luke four, when we compare these temptations, what's remarkable is Jesus doesn't agree to the premise of what Satan is saying. There's no debate. There's no conversation. Jesus responds with scripture and that's it. He doesn't entertain the possibilities. He shuts it down. And I think that that's worth noting. Adam and Eve leave the door open They leave the door open for this deception. Jesus does not. And we all experience these intrusive thoughts and these distractions, right? We all experience this sort of temptation. And we talked about it a couple weeks when we were talking about silence and meditation. I think that healthy spirituality requires us to recognize that these thoughts, these temptations are happening. We can acknowledge that they're there. Uh, But we don't negotiate with them, right? There's no negotiation with Jesus in the garden. He responds with Scripture. He doesn't even agree to the premise of the statement or the question or the misuse of the Scriptures by the enemy. He shuts it down. So I'm going to tie that off right there, but I'd be happy to go into more detail of questions guide that way. So we see the subtlety of sin. It's not bells and whistles. It's not shouting. It's subtle. Next, we grieve the marring of Eden, and I'll read verses 8 to 20. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden... Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And the Lord said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the, from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The certain serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel.'" Now in the midst of all that we could say here, I want to focus on the portrait of God that we see. And I don't want to caricature anybody's view of God, but I think there are ways that we imagine God in this passage that are not entirely helpful. More specifically, we conceive of God as ambivalent about us at best hypercritical of every aspect of our lives and all of the ways that we're a disappointment, he can be viewed as austere, cold, and distant, incredibly impressive, but unrelatable and unapproachable. And even as we read these phrases, I am immediately back in my living room as a five-year-old having done something wrong. Where are you, right? You see, even the way that you inflect the words changes the way we image the speaker. That's why I always kind of chuckle about, like, Emmanuel, God with us, and I don't mean to ruin anybody's Christmas sermons here, but the first use of Emmanuel and Isaiah is not good news, and the comparison I always make is the phrase, dad's home. Now, for you, as probably compliant, wonderful human beings, that's probably Oh, dad's home. Yes, I can't wait. For me, it was explaining how we propped up the phone books to cover the hole that we left in the sheetrock because we were playing indoor baseball because it seemed like a good idea at the time. And we were so winsome and smart that dad's not going to know that the chair is six inches higher than it was when he left because we're so smart. Or when a puck, a lot of indoor sports in the Denio household, goes sailing through the window... And you have to explain dad's home. Like that changes the meaning. The way that we inflect the words changes things. And we can view God this way. Verse 13, what is this you have done? Right? We can hear the shame in that question. So what I'd like to suggest, if I may, is just a little bit of a pivot from that. If what we've said about God so far in the series is true, I don't think it's a stretch to believe that the entire creation is some sort of a sandbox and God puts human beings in it and he says, show me what you can do. Jacob talked about it a couple weeks ago when he talked about the naming of the animals, that Adam does that and it's unself conscious play He's naming the animals. This is what God told him to do and he's doing it and he's unself-conscious about it. He's not looking around, you know, asking God, am I doing it right? Creation is God's sandbox. He puts human beings in it and says, just image me out there. Not to impress him, not to win his favor, but just as a joyful response to God's charge to fill the earth and subdue it. And within that vision is just so much freedom and joy and, in my mind, excitement. And when the man and the woman hide from the Lord, we might imagine his response to be harsh. We can even hear the questions themselves harshly. But what if the questions are just God's careful examination of what happened? He gives Adam and Eve, a chance to speak. He's carefully examining what happened. And what if the questions represent the grief of God's own heart over the tragedy that just happened? Tragedy, grief, it just means you wish it could have been different. It didn't have to be this way. So we can even reframe how we hear these questions. And God is even showing his graciousness to human beings here. Is the serpent allowed to speak? Nope. Man and woman are allowed to speak. God asks them questions and they're allowed to respond. But within what we grieve here, we'll just very quickly go through These are the curses that God pronounces on human beings. First, we see distorted relationships. He says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So in addition to the pain and childbearing, human beings are going to experience distorted relationships. So the desire for one's husband is actually comparable to the ruling. So there's this structure to it, actually, that it says the woman, your desire will be for your husband, which is set with he will rule over you. It's a structure. So the picture here between the man and his wife is a power play. There's not harmony, there's not mutual self-giving, there's not the companionship as God designed it, but it's competition in the worst sense. It's the zero sum game. It's power dynamics in the most fundamental of relationships. And we know this from our experience. You don't even have to be married or have been married to experience this. Our relationships have the incredible power to edify, to encourage, to be such a source of life to us. But on the flip side, they can also have the potential for destruction. There can be competition, there can be petty jealousy, all things that drag us down. And that's a part of the fall. Human beings are meant to have relationships in harmony with each other and the fall distorts that, but we do need to be aware that the, the curse doesn't completely undo the original goodness of God's design. It just requires us to be more humble. It requires us to be more self-aware and discerning as we engage our relationships, and you fast forward to the New Testament with Ephesians 5, renewal in Jesus points back to these restored relationships of mutual self-giving, of love, and of harmony. So they experience distorted relationships. They experience frustrated work. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now turning from the woman to the man, God's curse comes in terms of his work. His relationship to the ground itself will now be frustrated. What was once supposed to be a source of sustenance will become painful toil. And the toil here is the equivalent to what the woman experiences in pain. Like they're set in, uh, they're equal to each other in the structure. Uh, Jacob's going to talk about this in a few weeks, about the whole scope of the fall, how even the ground itself feels it. But for right now, it's important for us to see that just like relationships, the fall takes a good part of God's design and it distorts it. So work is not a part of the fall. Frustrated work is a part of the fall. Marriage, relationships, they are not concessions of God based on the fall. They're an original part of God's design that are twisted. And we grieve all of this because we realize it didn't need to be this way. Grief is different from despair, though. We're not meant to simply throw up our hands and quit on God's massive creation project. Even within this passage, we already see the seed of God's renewal in Jesus in 3.15 that says that there will be enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And he will strike his head and he will crush his, just captured beautifully, honestly, by Mel Gibson in The Passion, if you've ever seen that initial part. It requires a Roman Catholic imagination to envision it that way, but it's, it's just a beautiful, uh, beautiful portrait of what, what's happening here. And finally, we remember the generosity of God. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, even though human dominion on the earth is seriously distorted, we still see God's grace and generosity here, even in the fall of human beings. Now, by the faithfulness of his character, God must curse when the covenant is broken. That's part of the deal. That's how covenants work. If we wanna receive the benefits of the covenant, we also have to be willing to accept that there are gonna be drawbacks. And we all know this, right? Covenants and contracts, they always involve elements that we don't particularly like. I appreciate the bank loaning me money for my house. Uh, I'm not always wild about paying them back more than I borrowed, right? But that's part of the deal. They give me the money up front, I pay them back more than they gave me. I relish the likes and the loves that my kids bring me on Instagram and Facebook. I look for the most beautiful pictures, I post those, and I just watch the likes roll in. But I could also retire if they didn't eat so much. Right? That's part of the deal. They bring me joy in their winsome humor and their beauty and I'm obligated to feed them. Right? There's two sides of the same coin. I could be living my best life, <laughs> you know, somewhere on the coast of California, but these kids need to eat and they need a place to stay. I even volunteered at the house. Like you guys can keep the house. Mom and I are gonna go live in the Grand Tetons. So you know where we are, have fun, but that's not how it works. We recognize that there are good and bad things. It's the same way with covenants in the Bible. You don't get to simply accept what you want And ignore the rest. But having investigated and having dealt justly with each party involved, God does this incredibly generous thing. He made garments of skin for them. What an incredibly tender gesture on God's part, right? He has doled out justice as is his obligation as the covenant keeper and judge, but to condescend and to meet them in their shame and to cover them in ways that they couldn't cover themselves. That is a grace and a mercy of God, even here in the fall. And we could add to that, even removing them from Eden is a grace They are going to return to the dust. They are eventually going to die. And we read about that. But even that is a grace. Why? Why do they make such a big deal out of guarding the way of the tree of life? Because mortality in the state that they're in is a gift. Were they to eat from the tree of life, they would go on forever in that fallen state. In the same way that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil works, the tree of life is going to work as well. So I always picture it, I think about trajectories. If I were going to fire a cannon, I would ask Dave to move a little bit to the right, and I would fire a cannon down this hallway. Now if it goes forever in this direction, hypothetically it's okay, right? It's not really going to hit anything until it gets to that back wall. But if I move it just one degree here, right, After the first foot, not too bad. Second foot, now picture 10,000 years of those competing trajectories and how far off things are going to be. That's what eating from the tree of life in a fallen state would do. You will live forever, but you will live forever in that corrupt state. C.S. Lewis captures it brilliantly in The Magician's Nephew that the, the white witch eats from the tree. She will live forever. It works. It always works. She has length of days. I can't remember the exact phrase, but endless days like a goddess. But length of days with an evil heart is only length of misery, and already she begins to know it, which I just think is the perfect way to capture what it means to live in that state forever. So protecting the tree of life from human beings in a fallen state, that is a grace and a mercy of God. We're gonna see down the road in Revelation how this is resolved, but the temporary fix is to guard the tree of life from fallen human beings. So as we close, I just wanna ask you two questions, give you two questions to reflect on, then I'm done. If there's any questions, I'm happy to entertain those. Otherwise, I'm gonna get off the stage. First, this is shamelessly stolen from Kurt Thompson. Where am I putting myself in the way of oncoming beauty? The fall does not cause creation to completely unravel, but it does limp on. And as we discern our way, How are we regularly reminding ourselves of God's goodness and generosity, even amid all the brokenness and tragedy we experience day by day? I'll give you a personal example from Thursday. I was sitting with my good friend Aaron Sanford. He's home. I missed my friend. We were given this opportunity to catch up. We're sitting in the backyard and and catching up, and I just experienced all the joy of that friendship. And to add to that, there's this lovely breeze in the backyard. The shade made it nice. The breeze actually blew the mosquito that was trying to eat my face. But that was an example for me of something where there was beauty in that moment. And there was all the goodness of God in in my friendship with Aaron and the fact that he's home, that we were catching up together. It's a lovely New England fall afternoon. It was just that is an example of putting yourself in the way of oncoming beauty. It doesn't have to be something profound, it could be something simple. I know that Andy Crouch, who a lot of you know of, some of his like tech habits are, he requires himself to walk outside his house before he turns a device on. And he doesn't necessarily do anything, I think. He might just like stand on his porch, count to 15, and then go back in the house. I don't know what it is. It doesn't have to be something that takes nine and a half hours, right? it could just be something simple. Where am I putting myself in the way of oncoming beauty? Where am I keeping myself from falling into despair, into cynicism about the world that God has made? How am I actively fighting against that? Second question, and I'll conclude with this, who is my community? Who are my people? Who's helping me to discern the subtlety of how the enemy wants to wind me up? So as Carrie Lynn was up here offering this word to us, all of this require, like in the midst of our discouragement, in the midst of our darkness and our difficulties, this is going to require community. We want to be able to answer this question, who are my people, right? Who are the people that I can go to and share with? And in his generosity, Jesus has put people around us who we can trust. And I would say there are an uncommon concentration of them at King's Cross Church. I was just thinking about it yesterday. Like, it's so impressive the number of trusted, godly, wise people that we can go to here. It's, it's a grace and it's a mercy of God. And are we leaning into the safety of these people, opening ourselves up to hear them speak the truth into our lives? Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission.